what an incredibly suitable way uh, for us to enter into this space of um, meditating on Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer together as a community. Not, not just because it's always appropriate and suitable to pray the Lord's Prayer, whether it's alone or in community, because I think it is one of the central acts of Christian spirituality is to pray the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. But, but all the more so because this series that we're in called The Life Revolution is a spin-off series of a series we did back in March called the prayer revolution where we studied the words and the various petitions of the Lord's prayer to think about what it is that we, that Jesus was instructing us to ask of God and thinking about what that would mean then for the kind of disciples that we become. And now in the prayer revolution or in the life revolution, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going through these texts where I think Jesus is unpacking almost as a life commentary on the Lord's prayer, the ways in which how praying the Lord's prayer necessarily has to change the way we live our life. Because you're, we've said this over and over again, your, your life has to have integrity to the way that you pray. There has to be consistency there. The example I've used in this series is you can't ask God to let you win the lottery and then not go out and buy a ticket. There, there has to be consistency between how you pray and how you live. And so we looked uh, at the beginning of the series of the prayer request in the Lord's Prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about how you can't pray with integrity, thy kingdom come, if the reason you get out of bed in the morning is so that my kingdom can come. So you can live in selfishness and greed and luxury and comfort and indulgence. That's your primary motivation. That's, that is fundamentally incompatible. Um, we talked about how you can't pray, give us today our daily bread, and then get up off your knees and wonder where your next meal is going to come from. You can't, you can't be a kingdom person and a worrier at the same time. Those are fundamentally incompatible because a life in the kingdom is a life about faith and worry is a life about fear. And you can't be afraid that God's not going to take care of you if the God that you're praying to is the all-powerful, infinitely loving parent of the universe who is both sovereign and loving and knows exactly what you need and is going to take care of you. Have to, you have to live a life where you care about God and his stuff and then tr learn to trust that God will care about you and your stuff. This morning we want to look at the third of the three or four passages that Jesus teaches on, I think, that comes out of the prayer request in the Lord's Prayer that says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Essentially, it's a prayer request for forgiveness, that God would forgive us for the ways that we fail to be the people he's created us to be and fail to do the things that he has created us to do. But there's a condition clause in that prayer request that says the way I want God to forgive me is exactly parallel to the way that I forgive other people who have failed to be the people I need them to be and who have failed to do the things that I need them to do. When we say forgive us in exactly the same way that we forgive others, we're saying, God, take your cues from me, which in a sense, if you are an unforgiving, bitter, grudge-bearing kind of person, what you're saying to God literally is, God, do not forgive me for my sin. Because Jesus' point was that a forgiven person is a forgiving 
person. Well, Jesus goes on now in Matthew chapter 7, starting verse 1, to give us the lifestyle commentary that comes out of praying. If you're going to pray that prayer request, forgive me just like I forgive other people, then how does that change the way you live? And this is what he says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. I don't know how that's fair that you too gets in trouble for stuff that I do, but Jesus says, do not judge. That's corny, right? But or you too will be judged. Jesus says it is fundamentally inconsistent to be the kind of person who prays the Lord prayer, who says, forgive me as I forgive other people, and then gets up off your knees to live in this negative, judgmental spirit when it comes to how you relate to other people. That does not work. That a forgiving person cannot be a judgmental person. Those two are incompatible. Because forgiveness says, I accept you, even though you failed to be the person that I need you to be. Judgment says, I reject you precisely because you failed to be the person that I need you to be. Jesus says, you cannot be a kingdom person and a judgmental person at the same time. They're incompatible. The word judge, actually, in the um, Greek text is the word krino. And it means, comes out of the root to, to separate, to divide, to separate the good from the bad, to separate right from wrong. If you think about the judges on The Voice or the judges on America's Got Talent or whatever reality shows have judges now, um, what's the role of a judge, even in the law court? The role of a judge is to separate good from bad, to discern right from wrong. And that's what a judge does, which is kind of a neutral thing. But the word crino more often than not, tends to reflect the negative side of judging. In fact, we get our English word critic from the word crino. Jesus is saying you cannot be a Lord's Prayer kind of person, a kingdom coming, God's will doing kind of person, and be somebody who is fundamentally committed to playing the critic in everybody else's life. To treating everybody else and everybody else's life like you're the movie critic evaluating what's going on all around you all the time. You know, I like this. This kind of worked for me, but on the whole, their life was garbage. I give it two thumbs down. You can't, you can't live your life to be negative and judgmental and critical and condemning and be a kingdom person at the same time. I had this incredibly interesting experience about a month ago that brought all of this to light for me. Um, and it was an experience where I was being judged um, in this kind of way. And, and uh, it's not to say that I never do this because I do this all the time. But I had, I had gone to get my hair cut. And uh, my wife, who loves change, and I have had the same haircut essentially for the last 23 years. She said, just go and do something different. And so I went and I said to the person who cuts my hair, Aileen, I said, listen, Krista says we got to do something different. And so I showed her some pictures of what Krista had suggested and none of them really worked for whatever, the length of my hair or whatever. And so I said to Aileen, well, so she said, what do you want me to do, the usual? And I said, no, Krista said different, do whatever you want. And I don't care and I won't, I won't say a word. So she started cutting and clipping, whatever. And, and the next thing I know, she got the straight iron out or the flat iron and she's straightening my hair all the way around my head. I didn't have a single curl anywhere on my head. And then she's putting like product in it and she's spiking it kind of, well, it wasn't up. It was kind of down. It was kind of like emo-ish across my face a little bit and whatever. And she just went crazy and she just had fun and she did whatever she wanted to do. And I got up from that chair and I got in my car and I drove to church to have a meeting with some of the staff. And I walked into the church and walked into the meeting room and I sat down in the circle and instantly there was silence. 
for about half a second. And then everyone burst out laughing. And, and I was getting like, what the heck happened to your head? What on earth? Why would you ever do that? And then somebody said to me, go home and take a shower right now. We can't even have a conversation. And literally people were getting distracted from having the conversation because I changed my hair. And, and they were like, go home and have a shower. And they said, never wear that haircut in public. I forbid it. And just like people were like pouncing all over me because this, this haircut. And it was this most amazing thing. And it's not that I cared. I don't care. Like what people think about my hair ranks very, very low on my sense of identity and who I am and how I feel about myself. Like I don't care about what people think about my hair. But it was interesting as I drove away, I thought, why do we do that? And I included myself in that because I've done it many times. I, I do it more than most. And, you know, I, I do the same thing to other people. And I thought, why do we do that? What was it about somebody showing up with a new haircut that made all of the rest of the people in that circle feel like they needed to have an opinion about that and they needed to vocalize that and needed to admit it and, and to feel so strongly about it that people were telling me to go home and have a shower and never wear my hair cut like that again, that I, I had to put things back to the way they were. And like, why was it that we felt this need, we feel this need to have such strong opinions about such trivial things that make... Like, how did my haircut affect anybody else's life in the circle? Besides, not at all. But we do it all the time. We do it all the time. In his book, Repenting of Religion, uh, and in his sermon called uh, Worst of Sinners, which I'm going to post on our website this week, Greg Boyd talks about an experience that he had sitting in the mall where he was watching people go by and become, became aware of the ongoing commentary in his head. It was like he saw somebody with a political shirt and he said the thought that he had was, you voted for that jerk? That makes you even more of a jerk than that jerk is, you know? And then he said, you'd see this girl walk by and you'd think, oh, what are you doing with your hair? Like, I, I know, cry for attention. Okay, you've got our attention. And then somebody comes by in a muscle shirt and he's like, okay, buddy, like, way to go. We all see your muscles. And, oh, dude, pull up your pants. The world does not need to see your butt crack. Okay, and, oh, that kid is going to need therapy. Lighten up, mom. Boys will be boys, right? And just gay, that guy's gay. Like, he was just describing all of the, what was going on in his head and just suddenly saying, like, what is it? that compels us to have this internal commentary on everybody else and their life and their choices and so on. And you do it and I do it. It's this compulsion that we have to play the role of the critic, to be negative and judgmental about everybody else so we can, I guess, feel better about ourselves. In fact, the reason Greg Boyd says in the sermon, The Worst of Sinners, he's, the reason we do it is exactly that, is to feel better about ourselves. It's the exact antithesis of love because love, it says in 1 John chapter 3, it says, this is how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? This, this is, I'll resist the urge to break out in song, but um, it says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to do, lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Uh, love is this, to ascribe insurpassable and un, um, unconditional worth to somebody else at great expense to myself. That's what love is. Boyd says, you know what something's worth by the amount that somebody's willing to pay for it. 
And Jesus was willing to pay the ultimate price, an infinite sacrifice. Never in the history of the universe has there been a greater price paid than when Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross for you and for me. Jesus looked at all of humanity, every single person, and said, you are of such insurpassable, um, unconditional worth to me that I am willing to give up anything and everything for you. That's love. Judgment is the exact opposite. Judgment is where I ascribe insurpassable and unconditional worth to myself at expense to everybody else, where I tear other people down in order to build myself up, to feel better about myself, to feel like I'm more of a human being by contrast because at least I'm not as bad as them. It's anti-love to be that kind of negative, critical, judgmental person. Which is why Jesus says that down the road of living a life of anti-love in the form of judgment, there is judgment coming in return. For those who live judgmental lives, judgment is coming. He says, Lest you, you or else you will be judged. Now he doesn't say who's going to judge us, which is interesting. Because it could be uh, other people. Which, you know, makes sense. That if you are this sort of negative critical, judgmental jerk to everybody else, then probably you're going to get a disproportionate amount of negativity and judgmentalism and criticism back towards you. I think that makes perfect sense. But I don't think that's actually what Jesus means. See, in the New Testament, the word crino, by far, 99% of the time, the word crino describes something that God does. Crino is something that God does. Judgment is God's prerogative. The only one who can accurately separate good from bad and right from wrong is God. And so when we live in this judgmental spirit, what we're saying is, you know what, God, move over. I'm going to sit myself down on your throne, and I'm going to be the one who decides what's good and bad and right and wrong. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be God a little bit. And at the end, what Jesus is saying is that at the end of your life, God is going to look at us and say, well, you wanted to be God, right? Well, let me judge you on how well you did at being me. And since most of us are pretty terrible at being God, which is why we need Jesus in the first place, that judgment is not going to go very well for us. If you live a life of negative, critical judgmentalism towards everybody else, you are going to be judged and condemned by God at the end. That's, Jesus says that about as clearly as you can imagine him saying it. In fact, in the next verse, he expands and he says, for the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Jesus says, listen, I, he said, the final exam is coming and I'll tell you right now exactly what's on it. You will be graded in exactly the same way that you grade everybody else. I remember in, um, I think it was second year university, I was taking a course in power electronics. So I was studying electrical engineering. And uh, it was the night before the final exam and I had no idea, no idea what to expect on the final exam. I was terrified. I hadn't, I, hadn't, I was gonna say I hadn't done that well. I hadn't particularly paid that much attention in the class up until that moment. And so I was kind of panicky. And so I called my buddies, Mike and George and Dave. They always dug me out of trouble when I, when I got in trouble. And I called them up and I said, you guys studying right now? And they said, yep. And I said, I'm totally lost. And they said, come to the cafeteria. So I went over to the cafeteria and I sat down with them. And I said, guys, what do I need to know? And they said, here's the thing. We're not going to teach you anything about the course. The final exam is going to have six questions on it, as far as we can tell. 
These six math problems. You learn to do these six math problems and you'll be okay on the final exam. And so over the next couple hours, they showed me how to do the six problems. And then I went home back to my res room and, and I did the six math problems over and over again to like the middle of the night and whatever. And I showed up at the final exam the next day. Anyone want to guess how many math problems were on the final exam? Six. And they were exactly the ones that George and Dave and Mike had told me would be on the exam. And I aced my final. I got like 93 on the course. Only for one reason. Because I knew what was going to be on the final. I knew how we'd be graded in the end. And I adjusted my behavior accordingly. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to do. He says, whatever measure you use with other people, that's how God is going to measure out your judgment to you. The, um, this image of measuring comes out of the world of the grain trade in the ancient world. Because every grain contract in the ancient world basically had a clause that said that the grain being purchased would be, would be measured out in the same container as the payment for the grain. And it would be the purchaser's container. So the purchaser gets to decide, we're using this container and we're going to measure the grain. And then once I have my grain, I'm going to put my money, my silver in it, and we're going to measure it back. And, and it was just a way of making transactions fair. Purchaser dictates the terms. The rabbis picked up on this. And they said, you know, God has two measures that he's prepared to use in judgment. One is the measure of mercy and the other is the measure of justice. And just in fairness, you get to pick the measure on which your life will be judged. But the catch is this. You don't get to pick the measure with your mouth. You don't have to say, God, uh, I'd actually, um, mercy. If I could have the mercy measure, that would be amazing. You don't pick with your mouth. You pick with your life. God watches how you treat everybody else. And based on how you treat everybody else, God says, well, this must be the measure. Because it's the measure he's using so, or she's using. So it's the measure I should use too. So if you go around, Jesus is saying, with this attitude, like you're this negative, critical, judgmental jerk to everybody, and you put everybody's life under the microscope, and you're criticizing them for every little flaw and fault and foible and everything you don't like about their life, if that's, you're microscopically examining them in order to criticize them, if that's what you're doing in response to other people's failures, then that's exactly what God's going to do to you. He's going to put your life under a microscope and he's going to look for faults and flaws and failures and he is going to condemn you for every single mistake that you made. It's justice. But on the other hand, if you use the measure of mercy and you treat people mercifully and charitably and lovingly, you graciously and generously and lavishly pour onto them forgiveness and acceptance and love regardless of their faults and their foibles and their flaws, then God's going to look at you and say, well, you must want to use the measure of mercy and God will be merciful and charitable and loving towards you. And he'll graciously and generously and lavishly shower forgiveness and acceptance and love on you because that was the measure you used on others. Jesus' point is that a forgiving person is a forgiven person. And a forgiven person is a forgiving person. Not because you've earned it, but because you get it. Because you get the heart of God for love that desires to ascribe insurpassable, unconditional worth to everyone else at great cost to yourself. Rather 
than choosing the way of judgment. Because God hates judgment. And Jesus actually, in the unfolding, the rest of the passage, explains why it is that God hates that sort of judgmental attitude. The first thing he says, verse three, first thing he says, God hates it because it's self-righteous. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Jesus says, don't you get how self-righteous this is? That you would obsess. I mean, the image is obviously helping somebody get something out of their eye, right? And Jesus says, the, the idea that you would obsess over a little sleeper or over an eyelash or a little fleck of mascara that's stuck in somebody's eye and you would be obsessing about trying to remove that from their eye, a little speck of sawdust when all the while you have an eye beam sticking out of your face is ridiculous. It's the height of ridiculous. And by the way, it's not plank like a two by four. The word literally means eye beam. It is the structural support used in first century house building to keep the second floor on the second floor. That's what Jesus says is sticking out of your face. Remember, Jesus was a construction worker before he was a preacher. Just like I was. Another way that I was a little bit like Jesus. I think Jeff was a lifeguard. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um... But Jesus says, like, just think about how ridiculous that is. That you've got this eye beam sticking out of your face. And yet you profess to be obsessed over this little tiny fleck, this spinach caught in somebody else's teeth. That's what you're obsessing over when all the while you're not even noticing, certainly not dealing with this eye beam that is sticking out of your face. You, you can't, you can't, Spend all your time and attention and energy noticing everybody, other, everybody else's faults and ignoring your own. That's just self-righteousness. And the fact that there are some people in the room who don't think that they have sin issues that they need to deal with just tells you how deeply that self-righteousness goes. Jesus says, no, you need to put the shoes on the other feet. You need to, you need to reverse the way that you think. You gotta change the way you think about yourself. First Timothy chapter one says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Now I used to think that the trustworthy saying was Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, period. And then Paul added some commentary in the end that he thought he was the worst. And I thought, well, yeah, you're probably right. You're pretty bad. Um, but I think Greg Boyd has convinced me that the trustworthy saying is the whole thing. That what Paul wants is for people to adopt an attitude that says Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Einstein, it's not like a shame thing or a guilt thing or it's like I'm a terrible person thing and you know, hang your head and whatever. It's not that, it's just a mindset in how when we think about sin issues, how we think about our issues compared to other issues. Einstein once said, um, whatever your problems are with mathematics, I assure you that mine are greater by far. Now, do I think Einstein's problems with math are greater than mine? I doubt it, but it was a mindset, right? Paul says, whatever issues you have with sin, trust me, he says, I'm worse. Actually, I like the one translation that says, uh, of whom I am the chief. I like that word, the chief. Like if the sinners were a little tribe and they were looking to elect a leader, they'd unanimously pick me. Right, Because I'm the worst. And Paul says, that's the mindset. When you think about yourself, you look at everybody else and say, whatever issues you have with sin, I assure you, 
mine are worse. Paul says, that's how you think about yourself. Here's how you think about everybody else. 1 Corinthians 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, the only thing that I ever knew, the only opinion I ever had when I was with you was Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only thing I ever thought when I looked at you was God loved this person enough to send Jesus to die on their behalf, period. That is the only thing, Paul says, that I knew about you. And it's the only opinion that any of us should have about any other one of us. That's the only thing we know for sure about the people that we're judging and criticizing and condemning, right? Because like, you don't know their story. You don't know their background. You don't know the challenges that they had to face. You don't know their upbringing. You don't know the obstacles they've overcome. You don't know their life trajectory. You don't know the victories that they've experienced. Like, you don't know anything about most of these people. The only thing you know for sure is that Jesus Christ believed that this person was such such insurpassable, unconditional worth that he chose to give up everything, including his life, for them. That's the only thing you're allowed to know about everybody else. The only opinion you're allowed to have. That Jesus Christ loved them so much that he died for them, and now you're going to do the same. You're going to love them so much that you're going to be willing to give up anything and everything for their sake. Jesus says, you put those shoes on the other feet. You start right-sizing your perspective of your own issues versus your perspective of everybody else's issues. You start to look at yourself and say, whatever your issues with sin, I assure you, mine are greater by far. You start to put the shoes on that feet, and all of a sudden, your urge to judge just melts away. God hates judgmentalism because of how self-righteous it is and because of how hypocritical it is. Verse four, he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's an eye beam in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus says, listen, if you are trying to address sin issues with other people, identify and address sin issues with other people, taking the speck out of other people's eye and whatever, but you're not dealing with your own stuff, you're the biggest hypocrite there is. Because you're pretending, on the one hand, to deal with sin. You're pretending that sin matters and it's important. It matters that we deal with it and remove it and so on. And yet you're not in any way, shape, or form doing that with a sin in your own life. Right? With our stuff, we make excuses. I was born this way. That's just my personality. It's who I am. You know, like it or lump it. Uh, well, I tried to deal with it, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So you just have to accept. How come you can't accept me the way that I am? This is the way God made me. You know, on and on. The excuses, they just, they just come. It's not that big a sin. It's not a big deal. It's just a little white lie. At least I'm not as bad as that person. They just, the excuses, they come. For all the reasons why we don't have to deal with our own junk. But if you're not dealing with your own junk, you are absolutely disqualified from helping other people deal with their junk. Jesus says, how you can't see clearly enough. You don't have the empathy. You don't have the experience. You don't have the moral authority. You don't have the credibility to help somebody else address their sin issue in their life if you're not willing to address it in your life. He says, first, deal with your own stuff. And once you're dealing with your own stuff, and once you're face-to-face with the broken person in the mirror, and you're doing the hard work to unpack why your life, why you're prone to these sins or whatever, once you're doing that hard work, well, now 
Now that you know how hard it is, now that you know how broken you are, now that you know how um, long a journey it is to get rid of sin, now that you know all the stuff that goes, now that you have empathy, now that you have experience, now that you you have credibility and moral authority, and now you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be working on it. Now you are able to help other people deal with their stuff. And Jesus wants us to be helping other people deal with their stuff. When he says don't judge, he's not advocating for some kind of weak, politically correct tolerance that just accepts everybody and everything and says it's fine and where it's offensive to talk about sin. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked a lot about sin. He's called out anger. He's called out lust. He's called out divorce. He's called out lying and flattery. He's called out selfishness and hatred and self-righteousness and greed and worry and fear. He's called out all sorts of stuff. In fact, in one part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied last fall, he says, you know, he challenges us to be loving truth tellers in each other's lives. Jesus believes in speaking the truth in love and helping each other get the specks out of each other's eye and so on. You just have to be dealing with your own junk first. So you're not a hypocrite when you come alongside and help somebody else with the stuff that they're dealing with. So you can deal with them gently and lovingly as you journey together towards becoming the people God has created us to be. He wants us to deal with each other's stuff with two conditions, by the way. The text says your brother's eye or your sister's eye. And that word brother or sister communicates two things. Number one, you're talking about somebody who's in the community of faith. I don't know why the church ever got it into its head that our job is to criticize and judge and condemn the world. Jesus says in John 3, 17, he says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, to crino the world. Jesus says, that's not why I came. I didn't come to crino the world. I came to rescue it, to heal it, to save it. He sends us into the world, not to crino the world, not to be judgmental, negative, critical, jerks to the world that complains about everything that we see going wrong in culture, whatever. That's not why he sends us into the world. He sends us into the world to be a part of a redemptive healing conversation that walks with people towards greater wholeness and healing. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, it's not my job to judge people outside the church. It's God's job. Let God do his job. You don't worry about criticizing and condemning the world. Not your job. Number two, it communicates this is somebody you have a relationship with. This is a brother or sister. This is someone who's invited you into the circle. This is someone with whom you have a covenant friendship with. This is someone who's asked for your opinion and asked for your help. If they have not asked for opinion or asked for your help, if you do not have a relationship with each other of ongoing mutual benefit, the only thing, the only opinion you're allowed to have is that Jesus loved that person so much that he came to die for them and now I'm gonna do the same. Because that's why Jesus came. He came to die for broken people, non-condemningly, in order to bring healing into their lives. And it starts with you. It starts with you looking in the mirror and acknowledging how broken you are and asking Jesus to come and heal you. And that's what the communion celebration is all about. Communion, taking the Lord's Supper, is our opportunity to remember what love is. That Jesus came and died because he considered you to be of insurpassable, unconditional worth. He was willing to give up everything for you. 
And as we take communion together, I want you to be in that headspace that says, God, I don't want to think about other people. I don't want to be a negative, critical, judgmental jerk to the world. I just want you to heal me of my stuff. Make that the focus of my life. Make that the thing that I obsess about. Giving you the space to heal me of the ways in which I've gotten broken and wandered away from you. And then, and then as we leave the communion table, as we leave the service, we leave having taken communion, having received that love from the cross, from Christ, making a commitment to now be the cross to others in love. To be willing to sacrifice and die to see somebody else experience the healing of Jesus Christ. So if you're with us this morning and you know that you need Jesus, you're with us this morning and you know that there are eye beams sticking out of your face that you haven't been dealing with. There's sin stuff and junk and ugliness going on in your life and maybe judgmentalism is a part of it that you need to deal with. And I invite you this morning to participate in communion together with us. The bread, the wafers are going to come down the row. And I want you to, when it comes, I want you to take a wafer. I want you to put it in your mouth and eat it and then hand the tray to the person next to you. And then when the juice comes, take a cup, drink it, put the cup back in the tray, hand the tray to the person next to you. And as you internalize the wafer and the juice, what represent the body and blood of Jesus, I want you to pray that it would be the healing, restoring power of Jesus that would enter deep into your soul to deal with whatever darkness and junk sits there, including him setting you free from the spirit of negativity and criticism and judgmentalism with which we live uh, with the people around us. Let's pray that God would do that healing work in us. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you've shown us what love is, that you came and died, gave up everything, paid the ultimate price because you considered us to be of insurpassable, unconditional worth. God, would you heal us and forgive us as we take communion in this time? Would you bring to mind, God, some of the planks, some of the eye beams that are sticking out of our face, some of the sin issues that we need to deal with in our life. Maybe even this morning, God, especially that critical spirit that runs through most of us, if not all of us. Would we lay that at the cross this morning and allow you, God, to fill our hearts with forgiveness and freedom to become measure of mercy kind of people with each other who deal with each other in forgiveness and acceptance and love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.